Welcome to Learning at the Center, the show where we explore uncommon ideas about learning from Fort Lewis College faculty. I'm your host, Isla Moore, from Teaching and Learning Services. This week's episode is sponsored by Your Syllabus. Have you ever considered what your syllabus conveys about you, your course, and your attitudes toward teaching? Whether you see it as a learning contract or as a map for a learning journey, your syllabus creates an indelible first impression. And you know what they say about first impressions. Welcome to episode three. Today we're talking with Dr. David Kozak, professor of anthropology here at Fort Lewis College, and what he's doing to create community in digital spaces, how he feels about unintended learning, and how higher ed can be more inclusive. We also have a lightning round for you at the end of the show, so make sure you listen all the way through. Thanks for joining me and allow me to introduce our guest. Dr. David Kozak received his PhD in anthropology from Arizona State University in 1994. His dissertation and later work was on the translation of Tohono O'odham healing song poems. And he also conducted applied research on various topics impacting the O'odham community. He was a staff research scientist with NIH on several diabetes projects in the Gila River Indian community early in his career. And he's taught at Fort Lewis College for 26 years, participating in the creation of the Mountain Studies Institute, the Adventure Ed Program, the Public Health Major, and he received the MacArthur Foundation funding for pedagogical innovation. 12 years ago, he embarked on the creation of the Anthropology Ethnographic Field School in East Africa. The current program is housed in Bomo Ngobe, Tanzania, where he has fostered a collaboration with the Tenguru Institute of Community Development. This field school is a highlight of his teaching in that it fosters an immersive, experiential, cross-cultural, and hands-on intensive learning environment. Most recently, he's embarked on learning how to deliver digital coursework. He retires from Fort Lewis College at the end of the summer session. Welcome, David Kozak. What do you teach? I teach anthropology. This is actually my last year at Fort Lewis. I'm retiring. I've been here for 26 years, but I've taught courses, quite a range of courses from uh, language and culture, linguistic anthropology, medical anthropology, uh, cultures of the Southwest, you know, our usual intro classes uh, and applied anthropology. Those are the main ones in the last, say, uh, five to 10 years. And how was your undergraduate experience similar and different from the students you see in your classroom today? Um, I would say there's a little bit of both similarity and differences. Um, I'm a first gen student or was a first gen student in my family. Um, my mom had only made it to the seventh grade. And so education while valued, um, there wasn't a lot of uh, say role models in my extended family. Um, <clears throat> I was also in the military for four years. And um, I do have students who are both first gen and military, ex-military. Um, and so those are some similarities for sure. Did you know what you wanted to do? I mean, as a first gen student, did you know what you wanted to do and what the purpose of college was when you first entered the classroom? It was an, ex I would say an experiment. I really loved learning. I'm surprised my home, my hometown high school actually 
uh, passed me and I got a high school diploma. Eventually got both in history and an anthropology undergraduate degree, but did I know what I was going to do with it? No, had no idea. And it really didn't matter to me. Two years of my undergraduate career, I was homeless. I lived out of my truck. And that kind of added to the adventure of everything. But I really was not, for instance, career-minded. So I didn't really have a sense for that. I just knew that I really enjoyed learning. And so I suspect a lot of students are kind of in the same boat, especially traditional students who start right out of high school. I think a lot of those students jump around to different majors. They're exploring. They're figuring themselves out. Now that you're the teacher, you know, you're... you're facilitating the classroom, how does how does your previous experience of being both unprepared and a little unsure, but okay with that, and perhaps homeless too, how does that impact how you see yourself and your identity as a teacher? I would consider myself to be a very empathetic teacher. In other words, in trying to give students the benefit of the doubt, because we all bring different uh, experiences and histories to the classroom many of which we will never know from our students. So when you were an undergraduate, was there a class or a professor you had that really had an unexpected impact on you, whether for good or bad, and this still resonates with you today? It was a class called Art and Aesthetics from the art department. It was taught by Stanton Englehart. And that course surprised me an awful lot because while we did read materials, one of the things he had us do is to be very attentive to what was going on in the world and to apply it to some of the uh, aesthetic principles, theories, whatnot, that I was unfamiliar with. Or he, as a teacher, showed me, in a sense, though, you know, uh, kind of a, a, an approach that really spoke to me. Being kind to students, being gracious, being generous, these are kind of characteristics that, in some ways, I took for granted when I was taking the course. And <clears throat> that class had, you know, a number of my uh, friends in the class. And so uh, it was really, um, I guess, to put it bluntly, it was a surprise and a really pleasant surprise. How important was a sense of community for you as an undergraduate student? I do think the sense of community in a classroom is really important. I think just in general, knowledge creation, how we know things, what we know, how we uh, improve on ideas, on our knowledge of the world, it's done in a community, in communities, if you will. And that can happen at the level of a classroom. So as I mentioned with the, the class art and aesthetics with Stanton, he encouraged that kind of a model um, whereby, you know, multiple voices were heard. And it's like trying to figure out a difficult text or uh, complex idea. I, I will never forget, you know, that community. There are several people from that class that I'm still friends with to this day. They taught me as much as the, the formal class did. Do you know what I mean? It's this idea that, wow, you think this text meant this. Well, I think it means X, you know, and, and it goes back and forth and you, until you try to figure it out or not figure it out. 
and it's okay to fail at trying to figure it out or get the you know the, the exact meaning from something. But the point is, is that it's a community kind of experience. Students learn from each other, and I also know I learn something new as well. That their take on things, their spin on things, their experiences add something really unique that oftentimes make me stop and think, wow, man, I just learned something new from a student. Your own research has taken you into some very collectivistic communities. How do you feel collectivistic community is different from individualistic community? And it's Bowman and Gombe and in Tanzania, Northern Tanzania, it's a small kind of rural um, community, not touristy at all. Probably six years ago, Tengero Institute of Community Development is the only college, if you will, of community development in Tanzania. And so they train people in social work and gender and development kinds of ideas. And so anyway, we created a memorandum of understanding to work together and collaborate together. Our students, for instance, get to see and interact with and become friends with, collaborate with um, students from that school. It's always interesting to see how students fare in that, both whether they're my students or um, the Tangiro Institute students in what they learn out of it, what they get out of it. Um, but the idea is to make it a collaborative kind of experience. So we've done work on environmental issues, on health issues, on uh, food insecurity issues. And so we work together to create that knowledge. This helps their students learn methods in ways, primarily qualitative methods that are based in listening to people's stories. And so this is why voice is so important to me. Um, as I'll mention, I'm, you know, I'm sure throughout this discussion, voice is really central in that. And the ability to listen, um, um, because it is through listening to people's stories that we really begin to understand who they are. And that's the only way to do so. I wrote an article on new strategies in higher education, at least this for, from an anthropological perspective. I titled it um, and talk about it in terms of the intended and unintended kinds of experiences and consequences and learning that takes place. The unintended is the more, it's kind of the surprising experience one has with learning. Um, that is the product of one's own kind of personal trajectory and how they intersect with something in the world. And, and so certainly in the context of a field program uh, for our students going to Tanzania, uh, it can create, and I try to uh, emphasize what I would call high intensity dissonance so that you challenge yourself. And so it's like cognitive dissonance just in general, I guess, because you're placed in a situation that is completely unfamiliar to you. You have to figure out how to navigate that. The more we expand our boundaries or borders of ourselves and our own communities, the more you know, the more challenging it is from an emotional standpoint. But I think that emotional uh, feature of this 
really leads to kind of cognitive development. It's just a, and it's just a wonderful way to learn, I think. Um, and what many of my students, though not all, you know, are exposed to, because I have a lot of students who, um, you know, come from communities where they still live with grandparents and there is extended family. And so there's a connection there that it's like, wow, then it's like, it's not just all difference, but it's also, it's like, well, some of our students um, also connect with the cultures there. And it's like, wow, this is such a cool kind of like exchange um, that goes again, both ways. I sent you an article, um, cultural differences in online learning they looked at collectivistic and individualistic students and had, and one of their takeaways was that collectivistic, ambiguity, intolerant learners face disadvantages in online discussions compared to their individualistic peers, where individualistic students felt much more motivated to participate in online course-related activities than collectivistic students. The New York Times had a really wonderful series, OpDocs, uh, on race in America where individuals would talk about their experience with race and racism. And I do this in, in my intro class. And this is a really challenging, highly personal, potentially threatening, and potentially liberating kind of an exercise. I just ask students in about five minutes, you know, did you, uh, you know, have you been the subject of uh, you know, a racist, uh, you know, insults? Have you heard racist jokes? Have you been a racist expressing racist views? You know, so you can, it, you need to be able to feel free to talk about this. They are laying bare some of their very personal aspects of themselves, but it's not in a vacuum. It's in relationship to things we're reading, things we may watch, you know, in videos, this kind of thing to kind of contextualize it. But what it, the product of it is nothing short of miraculous because what it does is it's like it opens the door for students to be able to talk about something that nobody seems to really want to talk about except for what I found is that of people of color. Um, They're psyched to talk about it because they have very specific kinds of experiences that white or white passing individuals simply don't have. And so what you get from that then are these really rich kinds of discussions. And I do this early on in the semester within the first few weeks. It tends to set the stage for more uh, long lasting kinds of interactions and so and building and so i can t i can see people talking to the same people and then bringing other people in and that is an example that's been the most successful for me i think that's really an incredible approach because a lot of times there's a disconnect between the things the types of things we want to see in a classroom community and then the means by which we get there and it's easy to skirt the tougher conversations because our focus sometimes on classroom community is that everybody's just getting along. Here, you're you're privileging, like you said earlier, student voices and, and student needs in the creation of community. It's the community they, they need to be a part of in order to do the work. I deal with race issues throughout the entire course, if we're talking about economics or religion or politics or whatever it is. And so it's, it's embedded in the whole course. Uh, you know, I had one student, he had been in the Marines, so he's non-trad student. He is from an immigrant family. He, he did not want to do this particular assignment because, as, as the person claimed, was 
he's colorblind and there, you know, he's not been the subject of, of racism. And so he, he wrote me an email after the course and said of the, of the courses he was taking in his full load this, that semester, he said, your class was my least favorite when it started. And it was because he was being forced to do this assignment. He said by the end of it, it was his favorite course. But it was because of the voices of his classmates that made the difference. So let's talk about community online, community face-to-face classes. Um, how is how is that assessment that you do different in a face-to-face class than in a, in a virtual digital class? And which one do you think it works better for? I think it works, the example I just gave you works beautifully digitally. I think because you're not physically face-to-face with people. Digitally, it gives a little distance. I do a short little video of myself talking about the exact same thing I'm asking them to do. They watch some of the New York Times opdocs. They watch, you know, some of the the videos, the documentaries that have been created by anthropologists and historians about race in America, for instance. And so um, it contextualizes it. I can see how it gives a student the space to create um, their, you know, shared video. And then it gives students the space to sort of reflect and contemplate after watching someone. So it's not so quick fire as it would be in the classroom. Um, It allows more silence and pause, which I think is one of the benefits of online teaching, especially for these hot topics. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I do. I like that idea. I've never really thought of that. But I do think the pausing and reflecting is, uh, especially for a topic like that, I think is so powerful. For tips for creating community, then, um, you've mentioned quite a few things. If I can recap, you've talked about voice. Um, it, it sounds like you're talking a little bit about vulnerability and storytelling as well. S- safety or, you know, feeling security. I don't really know the right word for that. But what tips do, have you found help to create community um, in a classroom? One of the most important elements, as you've mentioned, is like voice. That is really important to me. And that is about respecting other people's voices and listening to other people's voices. Education, if anything, I think is marked by and should be marked by inclusiveness. Doesn't mean it always is. And in fact, I'm constantly seeing and experiencing ways that it's not. And that always kind of surprises me. And had you asked me this question, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, I would have had a completely different kind of response to you. Basically reiterating, at least in my online experience, you know, you made a racist remark. If you made a racist joke, let's talk about it. Why Why is there an issue with that? You know, so it's not about demonizing, but it's about, well, the only way you can grow is to be vulnerable to one's behaviors and, you know, whether your own or others. And so by creating an openness, a space for that to happen, I think we all benefit from it with an honest and like understanding kind of discussion. You have to make yourself vulnerable. If you're going to learn anything, I think you have to be vulnerable. You can't have a shield around you all the time. And so one's vulnerability is really part of this. And this is how you grow. I want students to um, model for each other, just as I want to model for them what inclusiveness and openness means. 
I include it in my syllabus, but I also talk about it uh, in the preface to different assignments. And then of course, when I talk to people, whether face-to-face -face or online, um, is giving encouragement that it's okay. It's okay when students say, wow, I wish, I wish we could have these discussions in all of my classes. And it's like, yes, and we should. Higher education should. Over the past easily 20 years, I have learned an awful lot from students about inclusion and how some of the things I say, some of the things I do are not inclusive. Yeah, when I say inclusiveness, it's like, this is something that higher education really, um, it still has lots of work to do to get to a point where it is as inclusive as possible. There's a lot of work to do with that. I fully get as a first gen student, I always thought, and for years I thought, I am an imposter. I, I thought in the classroom, I have no business being here. This, this is not part of my you know, upbringing. And so I do think that, yeah, it's like students all the time, all kinds of students say, well, I don't see me reflected in my instructors. I don't see me reflected in the institution itself or in the way we're taught and we're supposed to learn. And so there are these kinds of structural things. Absolutely. Probably one of the biggest changes I've made in maybe the last over the course of the last 10 years has been uh, to be more attentive to non-institutionalized norms about what learning, teaching and learning mean. And that's been something that has been liberating to me because I thought here I was a liberate, liberated kind of anthropologist. And it's like, wow, how self-deluded was that? And when students are given the responsibility for creating their own knowledge through, you know, like you've asked these questions about community, that's how they do it. You know, they have to do their individualistic work. You know, they have to read things, they have to write things. But Everything else in between, a lot of that is negotiated potentially with, with other students, with their friends. Um, the one thing I do fear about uh, a lot of online learning is that that community is much, I think, much more challenging for students to participate in. That's one of the major concerns I've had in the very little amount of teaching online that I've done. Learning is not just about putting in the time. It's really about engaging it in a way that hopefully, whether it's face-to-face -face or online, um, an instructor can, uh, can foster that. And I do think at Fort Lewis, I think we do overall a really good job of that. And we're dedicated to that. And so the more, more and more that we can create an inclu inclusive and open kind of environment to allow students' voices to be heard both in the classroom and in how we like evaluate our own disciplines, I think is really critical. And so, you know, we have these ideas of mattering and belonging and belonging apparently according to research is not sufficient to elicit feelings of mattering. Mattering is knowing that someone cares about our well-being. Someone's aware of us, that there's reliance there, you know, that I, I'm accountable to this group. I'm important to this group. How do you try to facilitate that? It sounds like you're a very caring professor, or is that 
is that one of the challenges that you were sort of just talking about? Well, we have differences, but we also have similarities. And so I guess one of the things that I like to do is that I do, of course, recognize people's differences. I mean, that's anthropology, isn't it? But I also very much value those spaces where we are similar and we share, um, because that's what a community does. We're sharing something. And so um, trying to convey that, whether in lectures, in individual, you know, communiques or Zoom, uh, you know, meetings. I guess that's how, I don't know if I answered your question, but that's, I think I have a sense that's, that's the kind of thing that, that I'll do. I heard a webinar where an instructor talked about exit tickets, which is a pretty popular learning tool where, you know, when you leave the class today, write down three things that you learned. But what she added to it was write down any, at any point in the class where you didn't feel included. Well, I think that um, it goes back, her name is Ruth Behar. She probably wrote this maybe over 20 years ago now called The Vulnerable Observer. It's about being you know, emotional, not just like cognitive development, but this is about the emotional basis of, of who we are as animals, right? I mean, we're emotional. And how can you subtract that you know, when you can be vulnerable and you learn? It's like we talked about earlier. Thinking about where higher education should move in order to serve this young generation of students that I think are very, I think they're very mature in a way that I wasn't at their age. I think they're aware in a way that I certainly wasn't um, about things like climate change or equity or inclusivity, you know, and as you said, you learn from them all the time. How would you like to reimagine higher ed? Where do you want to see higher ed moving and where do you see it moving? You know, in thinking about that, I, I first off think about my own discipline that I've mentioned a few times to use that as maybe the stepping stone for discussing this is that I have thought that anthropology, I've been disaffected by and still love the discipline, but disaffected with it in terms of its clinging to certain models of thinking, of thought, of practice, the big man theories that exist within the discipline that are really 19th century through a lot of the 20th century, those ideas are still out there. And they're the ones that everyone points to that, well, you, you have to know them to know, you know, contemporary thought. And it's like, well, okay, a little bit of that. But the irony is, is that this focus on interesting ideas of the day to continue to focus on them distracts us from more pressing kinds of issues that face us today. And my disaffection with the discipline really revolves around this is that, well, we're not, we're not being, we're not being inclusive. We're not being open. Um, we're not allowing space for different voices in what constitutes anthropological theory, the mainstream version of it. We continue to teach, and there's an expectation that we continue to um, give voice to those old voices that are really not germane to what's taking place in the world today. And so my sense is, is that from a disciplinary point of view, higher ed needs to kind of uh, like reevaluate itself 
And that's a challenging thing to do, to challenge these kind of taken for granted norms that exist, <clears throat> that are kind of structured into the discipline, <clears throat> because there's plenty of new uh, ideas, fresh ideas, fresh voices out there that um, should take on a more privileged position within the discipline, within academia, just in general. What's to me the more interesting kind of thing and more important thing for education is, do you know how to think? Do you know how to problem solve? Are you creative? You know, how much of yourself is embedded in in the process. You know, the idea to go back to the idea of community, we need an educational model. Uh, higher education really needs to focus on what, what actually community me means. And that's less about measuring it. That's more about how you create it and perpetuate it and recognize that there aren't individuals in learning because you know this the saying is like you stand on the shoulders of giants well that's true and that's never that's never wavered that's always been the case is that we we stand on each other's shoulders it doesn't even have to be a giant we stand on each other's shoulders or we are holding hands it's something like that that's a much better metaphor and so in any way that we can kind of like um create more and more opportunities for the unintended i think are really important that would include things like, you know, more and more unstructured learning environments. It's like, I, you know, that field program I mentioned we talked about earlier. Yeah, I, I create all kinds of intended kinds of like intentional kinds of lessons are built into it. But those aren't the good ones. <laughs> That's not what students will remember. They're not going to remember, you know, some reading I have from that program. They're going to remember going and having coffee with someone or eating dinner with someone um, that's what they're going to remember. So the zombie idea is perhaps that the professor has to be in control and in charge of the, the whole time, which is exhausting. Yes, it is. But there's this anxiety. Even after 20 years of teaching, I still have those moments of the unstructured. I don't know what's going to happen. And, but I've learned to embrace that a little bit more. Okay, so we are now at the lightning session for our <laughs> conversations. So the first one is this. Great teaching is really all about love. I motivate my students by challenging. One thing that surprises me about FLC students today is their diversity. One thing I love about FLC students today is their diversity. If I hadn't gone into education and teaching, I would have been a great climber. A silver lining in terms of education from the pandemic is online teaching. My students are always surprised to learn that I lived out of my truck and was homeless. One class I would love to create either online or face-to-face -face is an art and aesthetics course. One thing I would love for Fort Lewis College students to learn in school is to have fun with their education. Great one. Thank you so much. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of Learning at the Center with Dr. David Kozak. Please stay tuned for more episodes with your colleagues on creating community in digital spaces. A big thank you to Dr. David Kozak for being my guest and to you for listening. And just remember, with great teaching, anything is possible. Mm -hmm.